Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to stand before your word. Your word is good. It is truth. It is life. It is light. It is power. Lord, we desire that your word would resonate in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, and that it would work itself out, all of your promises in our life, so that we might become more full of joy in your peace and your love. Oh Lord, I give you my words and I pray that they would not be mine, but that you, Holy Spirit, would work through the words that I speak, the meditations of my heart, and that you would open up hearts in this room to receive your good word. Lord, for every weakness and every failure that is spoken, may it just be forgotten and not even heard. But Lord, we pray that you would work for your glory and our joy. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I was asked, uh, why, why, Michael, are you talking about Ephesians chapter 6 in this question around spiritual warfare? And I had the opportunity to uh, talk initially uh, last week as we began to look at Ephesians chapter 6 and was initially uh, intending to be one sermon, but as I began to prepare, it's now two sermons, and now as I've prepared, it's going to be a th- there's going to be a third sermon coming out of this, so forgive me for that. I don't know when that third sermon will come, but there's more details here that I think that we need to hear as a, as a congregation. I think the re- initial reason why I've wanted to bring this scripture to our, our attention as, as a congregation is that we are, we're under, we're under spiritual attack. And uh, I mentioned last week how I think there are some signals that this is, uh, at least in my own spirit, uh, how I've been sensing that this is the case, and maybe you too, uh, at least some of the people that I've talked to have agreed that this, this is indeed what's happening. And I think also the, the other reason why I wanted to bring the, the, this text to our attention is because I think we're, the Lord is preparing us for a new season, for something exciting and good that is coming. And uh, it's, it's going to necessitate that we as a people really bear down and pay attention to what's in this text and put it into practice. It's not enough just to be passive. We have to really begin to engage and practice what we are seeing here or practice, practice more than perhaps than what we've been doing. Uh, I shared a few stories from last week uh, out on the front stairs of some encounters that I had, and uh, you cannot make this stuff up. Something else happened this past week um, as I was walking out on Tuesday evening, uh, having worked here, uh, going to Park Street Station, and a man got up, and he, uh, he looked right at me. He came towards me. He was 25, 30 feet away, and he, he said, Someone break his teeth in! Could you not? can't make that stuff up. Um, and I, I was like, whoa, okay, that's interesting. And uh, I got down on the tee and left. Um, and it's interesting that this sort of thing has been, been happening, and, and it, it makes me wonder what the Lord is doing and what the Lord wants to do. There is spiritual conflict. It's real. And one only needs eyes to see and ears to hear that this sort of thing is taking place. Much of it is hidden, intentionally so, uh, but it does flare up, and we can see that there is an enemy prowling about, seeking whom 
he should devour. And the question I have is, well, what should be our response? Uh, one response that I honestly have is fear. Uh, I want to flee and be free. I want to run away and not deal with this sort of thing. Uh, that just seems a whole lot easier. I've kind of already confessed I like golf. I'd rather just go play some rounds of golf. I haven't encountered much spiritual conflict there. Uh, that seems like a, a much uh, sweeter place to be. Uh, but the, the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Uh, I, I think another potential response that the church really is always in danger of, uh, of embodying is in light of this spiritual conflict of taking on what might call, be called a warrior archetype. A warrior archetype, you know, that we become a church that's mean, green, and a fighting machine. We're going we're gonna to take on the world. It's Christians against the world, and we're going to be victorious through Jesus Christ. And it produces this kind of warrior mentality. Uh, but again, in verse 12 of, of chapter 6, and I encourage you to open your Bibles and, and keep them open so you can check to see what I'm saying is true. For our struggle, he, Paul says in verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And so we ought to really pay attention to this because when we encounter and sense or have an intuition of spiritual conflict, I think there is a, um, there can be a mistaken approach in which we start attacking the world. We start attacking uh, those who are being energized, perhaps by some uh, forces that are not of Christ, and we begin to think that they're the enemy. And we use language, and we have feelings, and we frame and say things that are, ju are just quite honestly not quite right. Because we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And so if we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, the world is not our enemy. We cannot make the world out to be the enemy because Satan is actually an enemy of every human being that's alive. And part of our calling as a church is to stick up for the world and to love the world. And in fact, so rather than fear or to take on this warrior mentality, the, the right response is love. When the going gets tough, we have to step forward in love. The reason why not to run away is because of love, love for God and, and love for our neighbor. Satan hates the world. He hates every person in the world. He desires to destroy the world and every human being. And part of our calling as a church is to embody the love of Christ. Because Christ, as you see, he's already done all the work. The battle belongs to the Lord. He already has the victory. And part of the, the amazing teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ, through his cross and resurrection, has conquered Satan and has defeated this foe. He's rendered him powerless in the end. And this is something that we celebrate, and our calling out of love is to go into all the world and tell others about this amazing love of the Father. This love of the Father through Jesus Christ, His Son, with the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is this, this, is this calling of preaching the gospel. And that's why we're here. We're here fundamentally and first and foremost to tell others about the good news, that they can be free, that Jesus Christ has brought this freedom, that they perhaps are dead, but there is life to be known in Christ, that perhaps they have been wandering around purposelessly, but now in Christ there is true and real meaning, that perhaps you've been lonely, 
And it's Christ who brings us in to his fellowship and gives us a family in and through the church. The gospel is power. The gospel is amazing and, and wonderful. And woe on us if we're ever quiet about it. Because this is the good news that's been given to us to tell others. But then why does the Apostle Paul use this warrior or battle imagery? Now, because it can, it can lead to some of these mistakes and these mistaken mentalities in which we go down the wrong path. Well, I think there's, there's two reasons why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 raises up, and he does this in other places, in 2 Corinthians as well, but he uses this battle imagery or this warrior imagery. The first reason is Paul sees it firsthand. He is, in fact, imprisoned three times in, a, in the book of Ephesians. He actually notes that he's in prison. For why? For preaching the gospel. Uh, he, in verse 20 of chapter 6, he actually says, I'm in chains. And so he's writing this letter from within prison. And from within prison, he's seeing the Roman soldiers, the Roman guard who are, who are uh, garbed in their, uh, in their battle uh, garb. But there's also a second reason. Uh, not only this, but the Apostle Paul knows the scriptures. And he knows the Old Testament. And in fact, he is quoting uh, in referencing Isaiah chapter 59, the prophet of Isaiah who had written some 700 or so years earlier, who talked about, and if you want to look, look in your Bibles at Isaiah 59 verses 15 through 17, which the, this, this part of Ephesians in Ephesians 6 is directly referencing. In, Ephesians, in Isaiah 59, this is what he says in verse 15. Truth is nowhere to be found. Now this is actually the Lord speaking. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. And the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. So the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, this, the great God, the he saw that there was no justice and that the only one who could bring salvation was he himself. So it was through his own might, through his own power that he was going to achieve salvation. And then it says in verse 17, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and he wrapped himself in a zeal as in a cloak. So you can see all this metaphorical language about the Lord Yahweh acting as a divine warrior, one who puts on a breastplate and one who puts on a helmet in order to war against evil, in order to bring justice, to have vengeance against the enemies. And no doubt, ultimately what Isaiah is talking about is not about the human enemies of Israel. He's talking about Satan and his minions. So Paul is quoting or referencing Isaiah 59. He's, he himself is in jail for preaching the gospel, and he knows the word of God very well. He knows that it is the Lord Yahweh who, himself who brings about salvation. He is the one who clothes himself in this, as a battle warrior. But then notice what he does in Ephesians 6. That's not what's going on in Ephesians 6 directly, is it? Who is it in Ephesians 6 that's putting on the breastplate, that's putting on the helmet of salvation, and so on. 
It's the church. So what's going on here? Is Paul kind of messed up and misquoting Isaiah? No. There's a very particular theology that Paul has of the church and of the lordship of Christ. It goes something like this, if you want to think of just this, the, a major sweep of uh, arc of the history of the Bible, is that after human beings fell, they were given over into, into, toward, to idols. And we read about it in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, in which the, 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 all of the nations were given over to idolatry, which was to be given over to dark forces. And Israel alone was left under the guardianship of Yahweh, of, of the Lord. But when Jesus Christ came back, remember in Acts chapter 2? Well, there's a couple passages in which these things that happened in Genesis became reversed. Jesus sent out the 72. He sent out 72 to preach the gospel and the demons were repelled. Why 72? This is in, in Luke chapter 11 or 12. Why 72? Because there were 72 nations in, in, in Genesis chapter 10 in the table of nations. And there, this reversal of giving over the nations to the darkness was now being taken back. Because now the preaching of the gospel was going to go to all the nations. This is the message of the gospel, to go to all the nations. Because now all the nations belong to who? They belong to Jesus Christ as Lord. The preaching of Jesus Christ because he's the king. And with the presence of the king comes the presence of the kingdom. And with the presence of his kingdom is the thwarting, the thwarting of the enemy. The enemy who holds the nations in darkness has now been said, no, no longer. No longer will you own or have authority over these nations. The nations are mine, all of them. And that's the reason why the church has been made out of Jew and Gentile to go to all the nations to tell that there is one Lord. His name is Jesus Christ. One Lord who brings this salvation, who struck the death blow to Satan himself through his cross by bearing our sin and conquering death through his resurrection. So these major acts of Jesus Christ give us the lordship of Jesus Christ as the, as the foundation of what the church is. But even more so, the church becomes connected to Jesus in a very particular way. In the language of the Apostle Paul, we're said to be in Christ. Perhaps if you've been around reading the Bible at all in the New Testament, you've heard that language of being in Christ. It's to be, to be unified with Jesus Christ. And this is a, a very amazing teaching of the church, is that the church itself, this is in another metaphor, is called the body of Christ. Christ is the head, and all of us make up the members of the body. And that's actually what's going on here in Ephesians 6, this very same thinking. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment, is Yahweh come in the flesh, bringing salvation. He alone, he, he alone has done it. He alone puts on the breastplate and the helmet of salvation. But you see, when you come into the church by faith, believing in Jesus Christ, you become knitted into one another, but we become knitted into, in unity with Jesus Christ as his body, so that the church itself functions as part of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus alone accomplishes his salvation, but that salvation now is being worked out in us by the church. And so we are given this victory. We are made into this warrior. So in Ephesians chapter 6, all the commands 
that you read about being put on and be strong and uh, put on the full armor. All of these commands are in the plural in which Paul is speaking to not one individual, but to the whole church to understand its nature that we have been made in Christ one with him. And so even as Christ has toiled against the, uh, the, the evil one and has found victory, even so we as the church are, have the same victory are in, and are to extend the victory into the nations. How? By wielding swords? Well, only metaphorical ones. By wielding the gospel and by spreading the good news. All the nations now belong to him. The city of Austin belongs to him. It is his. But of course, this is contested. The evil one does not want to give in, even though he has lost. He has not been thrown into hell. He's been allowed to, to remain. And for us to experience in Christ what it means to be victorious, in fact, it's, both, it's a both and, for us to experience in Christ the suffering of Christ, Paul teaches that in Colossians, but then also for us to experience the victory of the resurrection of Christ by engaging evil and evil not overcoming us. So that's the theology that lies behind within Ephesians and, and through all, all of the Apostle Paul is that the church it has this very, very high elevation. We've been made with Christ. What an, what an amazing thing. But wait a minute, you're saying, Michael, the church? The ch this, this church has been knitted together in unity with Christ? It certainly doesn't feel that way to me. Uh, in fact, the church's reputation in the United States is in tatters in our culture, isn't it not? If you uh, read the New York Times or, or, or anything coming, almost anything coming out of Hollywood, it's, everything is negative. Not so much about Jesus, but about the church. We're doing things all wrong. We've got all the wrong views. We're taking all the wrong positions. We're doing things that are just, we're just full of, of hypocrisy. Now, of course, some of that stuff might be true. I don't deny that. But it's so out of proportion to reality. If you look at what's actually going on in the church in the United States, so much good is being done by those who are following Jesus. I think the empirical data would, would stand for itself, and there's a lot of things that we could probably reference to demonstrate that this is, in fact, the case. But you would never know it if you were only in it, reading the newspaper or, or watching most news stations. You know, I, Tracy and I, were, we annually watch uh, the BBC's Pride and Prejudice, you know, that six or seven uh, series of Pride. Has anyone, anyone watched that? Sorry. We watched it on our honeymoon, and every year we would come back and, and watch it. And I was realizing that there are two major religious characters in, in the, at least the movie series, I've never read the book, in the movie series of Pride and Prejudice. They're, they're very religious. There's a clergyman and then one of, the, one of the sisters. And they're both essentially, at least display, uh, as displayed in the movie, they're morons. They're like the last people you would ever want to be around. Uh, and that is, I think, in, in one little kind of taste of what we see constantly being paraded before us of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Oh, they're just hypocritical, moronic sort of people that you don't want to be around. And in my experience, that's not true. I've been around so many, even in this very church, and as I look out on all of these faces, 
I've seen the glory and joy and kindness and of the giving spirit that is actually, in fact, what most of the time is happening. And yet you never hear about it. And part of that, at least within this theology, is that this is the power of Jesus Christ entering into us, changing our minds, turning our greed into being very generous and helping us to become more holy in, in various ways. There are marvelous, wonderful things that are actually happening. And you'd love to read about it in the news, but it won't be there, I guarantee it. But you wonder why. Why is this that this way? And it's because, at least this is my, I'll say this is my hypothesis, is that the evil one does not want the church to have a good reputation. Because in this high theology, if you really enter the church and begin to, begin to experience it, you will see the transcendence embedded within the church and you will meet the holy God, Jesus Christ, who saves from sin and transforms lives. That's the reality that many of us have experienced ourselves. And the evil one does not want that to happen. And so he spits on us and he wants to make us look terrible. No, I, I admit, there's plenty of sins to broadcast and, but the, the, the point is that these are the only things that are ever talked about. And 99% of the time, things are amazing and good. And you just have to be around here a little bit of time and you'll you see that that's the case. So the church's reputation is being undermined. And so we're called, as Christians, we're called to resist and to oppose. To resist and oppose, and the Apostle Paul lays out six ways in which the church is to do this, and I'm only going to go through half of them. I'm going to go pretty quickly. Six ways in which we're to put on this armor or to take on the, the battle equipment, the battle tools in order to engage not the world, but to engage the evil one. And so I want to just take you through these. Beginning verse in 14, he tells us to put on the belt of truth and have it buckled around your waist. Here is a, this, this belt of truth has this defensive function because it had an apron, the belt hung in front of it, an apron in which it would, it would protect the, the, lower, the upper part of the legs and the groin. And it also, the belt had this defensive function in which it held everything together. The breastplate and the tunic and everything, you know, if you have a good belt on and everything kind of holds tight together, if you don't have a good belt on, your clothes are a little loose, it's uncomfortable and it's hard to operate. The belt also had an offensive purpose in which it held the sheath in which the sword would go in, and it enabled one to take the tunic, and you could take your tunic and tuck it into your belt, because the tunic would hang down lower. You could pick up your tunic, tuck it into your belt, and what would that do? It made you swift. It made you able to run and to be able to move with agility. And that's what the truth does. It protects. It holds everything together. It empowers us to be swift to engage the attacks of the evil one. And I think there are two aspects of truth that the Apostle Paul, I imagine, is re referencing. One is objective truth, and the other is subjective truth. Objective truth is about, especially about doctrine, of what to believe. It's the truths that hold everything together. The church is called the pillar and buttress of the truth, in which by believing in the central teachings of, of the scriptures, represented in the orthodox understanding of who God is and of salvation. This guards and binds us together, and out of that, out of the logic of orthodox Christianity flows an entire way of living. And when you start to question 
those very core ideas only well, it leads down to a very different path. And I, and I have a personal experience in which that happened, in which I began in college, uh, there was a season in which I began to question the, the, the Bible's teaching about the divinity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is actually God. And curiously, I, I can remember back to that time, as soon as I began to question the divinity of Christ and, and, and bring counter-arguments to all the orthodox teaching about the, the divinity of Christ, I immediately... I immediately fell into sin. I immediately fell into some sexual sin that I'd already been kind of prone towards. Because in my mind, well, maybe it's all not true, and if it's all not true, then I'm gonna go do whatever I want. And that's exactly how doctrine and life actually hold together. They're, they're tied, they, they are indeed tied together. And so knowing doctrine and knowing it well, studying the Bible and knowing it deeply is very important because once you start questioning these core ideas, Everything begins to fall apart, but the truth, when you know the truth, it holds it together and it leads you down a certain kind of path, and that path is by far a path of flourishing and of hope. But if you start entertaining the, the ways of, not studying, but entertaining real doubt, doubt's fine, but when you start to say, well, and you start throwing a lot of, and we're all tempted to do this, throwing a lot of, of, of arrows at the truth, I guarantee you, you're, you're, the way that you're living will immediately come under question. And you'll begin to start doing things that you never perhaps even, uh, you perhaps never would have dreamed to do. And so truth holds together how we live. And so this objective truth and subjective truth are, are indeed tied together. The subjective truth is also about how we live and that we are allied, that we allies, ally ourselves with the truth. That is, that we're truth speakers, that we speak the truth. He says in Ephesians 4, 25, put away falsehood, speak truth to your neighbor. And there is, there's all kinds of propaganda. There's all kinds of lies swirling around us. And there is a, a major temptation to tap into that energy and allow yourself to become a person who speaks falsehood and who speaks lies, where you get really loose with the truth. And neither as individuals in Christ or as the church can we go down that path. We have to be committed to the truth. The truth holds things together. The truth will keep you on the path that will lead you to life. And we have to be a community that is willing to speak the truth, both to the culture, but to ourselves. And sometimes that's hard to speak the truth to one another. And I'm not talking about doctrinal truth, I'm just talking about life and living. That sometimes hard things will happen and we have to be honest with one another and be willing to tell the truth to one another. And that's part of the basis of being in a real authentic community in which we're a community that is speaking the truth. We have to be a, also, in, in pursuing the truth, we have to be a community that is committed to figuring out what's going on in our day. And I don't know about you, but I read the newspaper, hear the news, or read the news, read the news or, or watch TV, and it's confusing on what the truth is. And there's all kinds of voices, and there's an obligation as the church committed to the truth to pursue the truth. I hear things, uh, for example, I, I hear people poo-poo within the church, which frightens me, poo-poo things around science. And science is one of those ways that we can begin to have access to the truth. And I know science can be used in a, in a negative way. It can also be a tool of propaganda. But 
by and large, that's not the case in, in the United States. And when I hear Christians say, oh, well, I don't really believe those studies, and even the whole scientific community comes together and, 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 and says, well, this is really what's happening. And Christians say, no, I'm not going to listen to that. I, I worry. I worry that we're, uh, we're, we're not willing to pursue and follow the truth as we're commanded to by Scripture. So we have to be discerning. I understand that. We do have to be discerning. Science can be misused, but nevertheless, uh, science is a way, it's a gift from God in which we can pursue and understand not doctrinal truth, but we can understand what's going on around us, and we need these as aids, and that's as a community we need to be committed to pursuing that. Well, let me tell you, uh, I'm going I'm to jump to the second, uh, the, the second piece of battle armor that we need, and it's, and it's fo focused on the, the shield, and we'll come back to some of these others. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. That's verse 16. See, the, the Roman shield with the Roman soldier was, was about four feet high and about two, two and a half feet wide. It was almost like a, it was shaped like a door, except it could be slightly curved. And it, was a, it had a protective feature to it in which one could hide one's entire body uh, behind the shield. And faith is believing, and Paul compares the shield to faith. Having faith in God. Faith in what? Faith in God's promises. Believing in God's promises. Not only this, but the faith as a shield was intended to function in which the soldiers would work together, in which their shields would overlap. And it, would, it was called a, a, a formation of the, fa the phalanx in which the, the shields fitted together, forming a, a singular wall, and it would even be double-walled uh, double and on the sides, almost kind of creating the shape of a, a turtle shell. And it's a reminder that, that we're in faith, in believing in the promises, we can't be alone. Uh, it's, there's a temptation to isolate ourselves. And if you're in the city of Boston, isolation is one of the great temptations, especially around your faith. And so if, you don't, if you're not exercising faith together, you're prone to attack. The evil one will have pathways to get at you because one shield actually is not enough to extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one, so we have to be interconnected. In the spiritual realm, as a church, we have to function like the church and interconnect our shields. And with that, we create a, a, a wall that the evil one cannot penetrate. It's like the, uh, the Gladiator movie, in which, uh, remember the Gladiator movie with Russell Crowe? He, uh, he's a, a gladiator in the games, and, uh, and then there's all these fierce beasts and all these other things circling around them in chariots and so on. And the ones who are alone, they get, you know, hacked down really fast. But uh, Russell Crowe, who's the general, uh, a Roman general calls everyone together and, and, and he forms this phalanx in which they, they gather their shield and they form a dome around themselves and they're able to actually protect themselves and out of that formation they're able to defend, not only defend and resist but to fight back and actually end up winning. And that's what we're supposed to do with our faith. Don't isolate yourself by being alone. You need to be in small groups, you need to be in church, you need to be connected. And if you're not in those things, you're vulnerable. And so, so it's very important 
to get yourself interconnected. Some people don't want to get connected because they have doubts. They're experiencing all kinds of doubts about Jesus, about the truth, about where to go in life. And, uh, you know, if you're experiencing doubts, you're in good company. Welcome to the crowd. Everyone, including myself, experiences doubts about what the truth is, about who God is, and which path to follow. The best thing to do when you're feeling doubt or experiencing doubt is to talk about it. And, you know, I don't think people are going to look down on your faith. They're going to, what we should do is putting our shields together is to talk to each other about the promises of God, remind each other. There's no shame in experiencing doubt. We all experience that. But when we hear about one another's doubt, we don't yell at each other. We, we remind one another of God's promises, of what God has done in the past. What has God done in your past? Where have you seen the evidence of his, of his work in your life? Well, oh yeah, there, there was this occasion. Oh, yeah, I remember God doing this. And we start having those kinds of conversations and we remind one another about God's goodness and about his word being true and faithful, and it's something that we can, we can trust in. The scripture says, let us hold unswerving to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as in the, the, habit, of some, as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more. And so that's, that's part of why we get together. We have to be in one another's lives. We have to know where we're struggling. And you need to be transparent. You need to be open. You need to be free to let people see where the struggle is. And then we, others, you tenderly speak the good word. And in that, we lock our shields and we begin to find a way to resist the evil one. Well, I don't know if you've ever heard uh, or seen uh, the YouTube video about the battle of, at Kruger. This was a, um, a video that was taken in South Africa uh, in, in 2004, and it was posted on YouTube in, in 2007. And, and uh, as of this, this week, there was over 80 million people who have viewed the battle of Kruger. I bet you're some, some of you have, have seen this. This is Kruger National Park, park where there's um, the, the, the Cape Buffalo, and they're walking along the, uh, a water hole. Uh, many of them, there are dozens and dozens and do dozens of various sizes. And over there on the other side of, of the water hole is a pride of lions. And the, the, it's an amateur video. Do you, have you seen this? The amateur video is, kind of pans back and forth. Is they're watching the water buffalo, the, these Cape buffalo walking along and they can see the pride way over there. It's like, oh, this is gonna get interesting. And as the, uh, the water buffalo are walking along the, the pride, the lions start getting, they start making some noise, and this is pretty exciting. And it's being led by a kind of a male dominant buffalo, uh, but there's some others right behind, and uh, the, the major herd stays way behind. Well, the lions attack, and the, the buffalo, including the, the, the lead buffalo, kind of scrambles and, and, and runs away. And in this attack, the pride actually gets a, a baby buffalo. And the lion hops, as all on the video, lion hops on the video, or hops on the, on the, the baby buffalo, oh, this is getting interesting, hops on the baby buffalo and, and brings him down, and brings him down right at the, 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 the edge of the water hole. 
and the pride comes in and there's like six lions on this baby buffalo and he's crumbled down to the ground and you can, you know, one of them has his mouth on the, on the buffalo's neck and, and, and the, um, you know, the people on the video are saying, this is over, wow, I can't believe this just happened, the, the lions just took this, this baby buffalo. Well then, as the buffalo is still kind of struggling, all of a sudden, a crocodile comes out of the water and grabs on to the baby buffalo. And the lions are trying to pull the buffalo out of the water. The crocodile is trying to pull the baby buffalo into, into the water. And there's this war between lion and, lions, and, uh, lions and crocodile over this baby And it's over. Wow, this thing is done for. What could possibly happen? But, as you might imagine, the buffalo don't give up. They start marching forward. And uh, it's led by, by some of the male uh, bulls who got their enormous animals. And they've got these big horns. They've got power. Power they don't quite even realize. And they, the bulls kind of go shoulder to shoulder. You know, they're moaning and making all their noises and they're approaching the pride. The pride had taken the, the, the baby out of the crocodile, so the crocodile disappeared. And they're coming forward and they're marching forward. They're very skittish, as, as you might imagine. And the lions are roaring and all the rest. It's a big face-off. And, and the person in the video is saying, they're too late. They're too late. Like, they're too late. Buffalo, don't give up. They move in. And then finally, the, 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 the major bull comes right in. And with his horns, takes that lion and flings it. And then the other, the lions are still trying to hold on. And then the other bulls come right in and push that pride away. And that baby buffalo got up and was living and scampered off with its family. <laughs> Battle of Kruger, you can watch it. It's a real story, but it's a spiritual metaphor. It's a metaphor for us as the church. There are spiritual lions. There are spiritual crocodiles coming after us, looking for every single weakness. And when we scatter, we are weak. But when we line ourselves shoulder to shoulder, believing in the promises of God, seeking out his truth and putting on this other armor, the power is in us to make lions flee, even the great lion to make the crocodiles flee, even the great serpent. And so may we know, may you, my friends, know the power that is in you, the power that has been given to the church. We don't have to go looking for a battle. The battles come to us. The evil day comes to us. Our calling is to put on the armor and to believe the promises and we will watch the enemy flee.